So the uncertainty is almost more terrifying than the certainty of being arrested. Well, the uncertainty is the heart of terror, and I think that's what really Putinism inherited from the Soviet Union. In 1979, Alex Halberstadt left Moscow. Just a few years later, Masha Gessen did too. Though both eventually made their way to New York City into successful careers as writers, Russia and Russian identity have remained consistent guides for their work. From the ascendance of Vladimir Putin to the inherited trauma of living in an autocracy. Gessen recently joined Halberstadt at the museum to discuss art making in the age of Putin. In this episode of the MoMA Magazine podcast, you'll hear how the divides between officially sanctioned Soviet society and the underground were not as clear as you might think, how self-censorship became a part of everyday life, and how the political vocabulary used by Putin reflects what we're experiencing in the United States. Hi, I'm Alex Halberstadt. I'm a senior writer with the creative team at the Museum of Modern Art. Hi, I'm Masha Gessen. I'm a staff writer at The New Yorker. Where did you grow up? I grew up in Moscow. Mm-hmm. And how old were you when you left? I was 14. I was 14. So I was like... So I grew up in Moscow, and I left when I was nine. And I think that we're roughly the same age. So this was in the 70s, uh, during the great old Soviet Union. Right. I left in 1981. Yeah, I left in 1979. When I was growing up in the Soviet Union, there was always this really clear divide. There was the official world of state-sanctioned books, art, public figures, and then there was the underground world. So I just remember being constantly aware of this kind of line that ran through Russian society, or I should say Soviet society, where people were either on one side uh, and they were sellouts and morally corrupt, or they were on the other side, in which case they were not really getting all their work shown or their books published. Masha, I wanted to ask you, what are the conditions in Russia right now for creating art and writing books and expressing one's own opinions? Is it as clear and clear-cut as it was during the Soviet times, or has it become more ambiguous? Um, well, first, let me problematize the, 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 the framework a little bit. So, um, I, you know, in a way, it was just as clear and clear-cut as you described, and in a way, it wasn't. For example, I actually grew up in a writer's union building. Nobody in my family was a member of the Writers' Union, but the Writers' Union building, it was nine stories. And the first eight stories belonged to the Writers' Union. But the top floor, which was built as an afterthought, belonged to the Cinematographers' Union. It was one of those like amazing Soviet um, you know, stories of, uh, sort of wheeling, dealing, and corruption in a strange framework. So this was like... A, the extra floor belonged to the cinematographers' union, and my, the man as I knew, as, uh, uh, whom I knew as my grandfather, when I was growing up, was actually the head of the documentary department at the main film studio, the Goskino. And yet, you know, I grew up reading Samizdat, and in fact, the apartment next door to ours, where my mother's best friend lived, they grew up together. Um, this was the apartment, so like you know, all those mimeographed c- copies uh, uh, that artists published of Soviet um, uh, Silver Age poets. So the collection of poetry resided in that apartment next door. So my mother's best friend's husband was a collector of the of of the original editions of these Silver Age poets, all of whom were banned or sort of depublished, forcibly forgotten, in the Soviet period. 
And they made friends with these uh, with this professor and graduate student from uh, Ann Arbor uh, named Ellender and Carl Proffer, who would take pictures on microfilm of these uh, books, smuggle them out of the country, print them as books, uh, you know, as facsimile copies in Michigan, and smuggle them ba back in as books. And I grew up reading these books. I had no idea that all I had to do was actually go across the hallway to look at the originals. I didn't learn that until years later when I moved back to my grandmother's apartment uh, in Moscow and Ellen Day Proffert came to, uh, to Moscow to celebrate the 25th anniversary of artists and the party was in that apartment and I learned the, the whole history of it. Um, but all of that was happening in an official writer's union building, right? So there was actually a lot of kind of, the, uh, some people managed to exist on two planes at the same time. Right, right. And actually, can we, can you just explain what the writer's union and the cinematographer's union were in terms of what it meant for working cinematographers and writers? Right, so um, actually not that different from, from what it means today, uh, interestingly. Basically from the, from the time that the Soviet state was created, it was very clear to the new regime that uh, that they needed what to weaponize the arts, and uh, it was very clear that you know in this in this new society where everybody was supposed to be equal, there had to be some sort of creation of incentives and privilege, in order to get people to work for the regime. So as soon as they equalized everything, they started constructing privilege, and one of the ways in which privilege was constructed was to create these unions um, of artists who served the regime. And if they served the regime well, then they got a lot of perks. So that's what these unions were. If you belong to the writers' union or the cinematographers' union, you got your projects funded, you got your books published, you got your, um, uh, your tickets to writing resorts and all sorts of other stuff. And you, if you were not a member, that you, then you couldn't get published for, to save your life. So, so you are either san sanctioned or non-sanctioned. In that way, the line was very, very clear. Yeah. So if we just move the action forward a little bit to the age of Putin, how has that situation changed for, for the same writers, the same cinematographers, the same visual artists who are trying to make art today and in the last two decades? Um, so there was, there was a moment of great opening with the fall of the Soviet Union? Right. I mean, officially censorship wasn't lifted until the Soviet Union collapsed. But censorship was loosened right. so significantly. And there was so much that had been pent up that it felt like just everything was out there. And, um, and the consumption of the arts also exploded. So, you know, people were hungry for what could be offered. And what was offered was of incredibly high quality because you know, if you publish nothing of any interest for <laughs> two generations, then like there's a lot it's to a big choose. Ba from. A nice backlog, right? Um, so, in a way, the backlog kind of dry started drying up around the same time that interest started uh, waning, and and I think that by the late '90s, we could actually tell that 70 years of totalitarianism did not just pass without a trace. There was actually there was very little significant sort of writing life happening. Uh, I'm less in a position to talk about other arts, but um, but certainly in literature, there was, you know, like the language had really taken a beating and, and literary culture had really taken a beating. And then with, with Putin for the last 
20 years, actually, there's a kind of commercially driven censorship that has proven incredibly effective. And some of it, I think, has to do with re reawakening these totalitarian habits. So you probably couldn't do this in, an, in another society. But when you apply this much political pressure to society that's used to being totalitarian, then it brings all of those structures back to life. So for example, in 20, between 2011 and 2013, uh, this law for the protection of children from harmful information, which we just for convenience sake uh, in Russia refer to as the, protection, uh, the law for the protection of children from information, uh, was passed. And it's, it's this like ridiculous law that includes the law, uh, the ban on gay propaganda, but it's more than that. It creates these ages, uh, uh, age categories for any printed material, any visual media, anything at all has to have, uh, has to be marked with the age for which it's appropriate. So you can't sell a book without uh, deciding first whether it's for grown-ups or children. And if it's for children, it's particularly onerous because the guidelines are extremely clear. So for example, children under a certain age are not supposed to know that death happens. That really puts like a damper on fairy tales and uh, <laughs> adventure stories, and, and that's. And this thing. this is this is a government mandated law. This is an actual federal law. Yeah. Okay. Uh, it, it, as in in the sort of the bureaucratic way of totalitarian societies, it regulates everything, including um, type size, uh, f uh, font size, in in uh, in children's books. And um, being so wide ranging, it's one of those laws that can never be enforced. Fully, which means it can only be enforced selectively, which means it opens up all sorts of opportunities for uh, kinds of horizontal community, in, in air quotes, enforcement. So for example, um, there was a group of parents in the Urals who got together and decided that they wanted to, uh, that some books published by a couple of Moscow publishing houses were dangerous to children and were in violation of this law. And the publishing houses went to court but before they went to court, bookstores immediately stopped carrying those books because nobody wants to get in trouble. Right. So by the time they got to court and actually won their case, they had pulped all the books. And think about what that means for future books. Right? Nobody wants to, have, to take a financial risk of printing books and then having to pulp them. Right? So it's actually like this incredibly, uh, th this, this meeting of totalitarianism and capitalism is very productive because at least in Soviet times, you know, if you risk, if you're risking, if you were taking a risk, you're risking losing your job, right, which is a big deal. But, but you weren't risking these very specific kind of you were, you weren't taking specific economic risks, like publishers do. And that's what publishers tell me censorship is like. Right? I'll give you another example. Um, there's a publishing house in Moscow that owns the rights to most of my books. I write about Russia, but uh, so the only book that's been translated was a book about the mathematician Grigory Perelman because it seemed the least offensive. I mean, even that book ultimately ended up getting the publisher in trouble because there's uh, a chapter in it in which I talk about the greatest Russian mathematician probably of all time, one of the greatest mathematicians in the world in the 20th century, um, Kolmogorov, who was gay. Right. But once I use the words homosexuality uh, and, 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 and gay, the wrath of Russian 
society was upon me. How could I have so sullied the memory of one of the greatest <laughs> Russians of all, right. of, all, of all time? Right. Um, but so so they, uh, you know, I've talked to the editor who 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 acquired the rights to to my books, and uh, says, well, you know, I went to talk to our distribution department about or to our sales director about the Pussy Riot book which would probably be very popular. It's like a very easy read, it's a popular subject. I mean, this is a few years ago. I said, but what if bookstores don't take it? Then we take a loss. And so it's not political censorship per se, is that everybody has political fears that translate into economic disincentives, that translate into having spent money. So this kind of leads me to another question I wanted to ask. And we've spoken about sort of economic incentives. We haven't spoken about some reactions by the government to artists and writers like arrest, like outright assassination, as in with, in the case of Anna Politkovskaya. What I wanted to ask you, Masha, is to what extent is self-censorship part of the mindset of artists and writers living in, under this state? Is it, because it sounds like a lot of it is sort of self-regulation. First of all, even under like full-on totalitarianism, most of it is self-regulation. No state, not even like the Stalinist Soviet Union, is capable of applying direct pressure to every person at, at, at any given moment. People appraise their risks. People buy into the reality that they're offered, and 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 they inhabit it. And as time goes on, there's a, a kind of an economy of terror that forms, where people really just kind of enforce the rules themselves. And if they fail to, then their neighbors will. And the state has to do very little. And I think that's, you know, when I talk about totalitarian habits kicking in, that's really what I'm talking about. So it's a, it's a kind of almost self-enforcing system that Absolutely. people perpetuate on themselves and each other. Right. Right. And that's, and that's how they kind of understand society. So, so I, I guess the other side of that, the other thing I wanted to ask is there are still, perhaps amazingly, perhaps not, a lot of artists and writers doing incredible work in Russia who are incredibly resilient, courageous, who are publishing and, you know, exhibiting politically risky work. What, what are the sort of daily, I guess, what is the work that they're doing to kind of coexist with the Kremlin, to kind of stay in some kind of balance, some kind of equilibrium where they can still exist and can st still make work without running afoul of the state? I think there are a couple of things. I mean, nobody, with, with maybe a few exceptions, but nobody really overestimates their own uh, importance. Um, when I lived there, it's not like I lived in daily fear of being punished. I actually, you know, I lived there until six years ago. Um, and the reason I left was not because I was under threat for my work directly. I actually did not feel like they were, this, the Putinites were about to come and get me for something I'd written. You know, by that time I'd published a, a biography of Putin. Uh, um, but you were, but you were beaten up. I was beaten up for protesting the law on homosexual propaganda. And I was beaten up during a protest. I see. It's not something that should happen to anybody, but it's not like somebody like randomly chased me in the street. And you weren't singled out. I was not exactly sing singled out. I put myself in a situation that ought not be risky, right. but I also realized was risky. But, but there were also, if I'm remembering right, actually people on TV referencing your specific family. 
Yes, and that's 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 why we left. I mean, we left because uh, because when they during the passage of the propaganda law, um, the uh, sort of the leading anti-gay campaigner uh, Vitaly Milonov said, and also we have to ban adoption by same-sex couples because all Americans want is for perverted families like Masha Gessens to adopt Russian orphans. And I thought, uh-oh, that's a direct threat because my oldest son is adopted. But at the time it was terrifying and I contacted a lawyer, uh, an adoption lawyer, said the answer to your question is at the airport. But I wouldn't say that it was directly related to my journalism. It was, it was related to my activism and to my being very openly queer. It's a horrible place to live. But it's not like when you're living there as a writer, uh, you're under constant threat and you, and you feel like you're under constant threat. But then you can absolutely be singled out for enforcement and it's terrifying. I mean, there's a woman named Yulia Tsvetkova who is in jail for um, these kinds of um, primitivist uh, kind of sex ed drawings. I don't know how best to describe them. I think that's a pretty good way to describe them. Uh, and she's accused of, uh, I think, distribution of pornography and, and homosexual propaganda. The ban on homosexual propaganda is actually part of this law on the protection of children from information. <clears throat> and it was passed, it was, it was an amendment to this law that was passed in June 2013. And it bans uh, the propaganda of non-traditional sexual relations to minors. And there is a constitutional court decision that clarifies what that means, and, uh, and I will quote. It bans the intentional and uncontrolled distribution of information that can harm the physical or spiritual development of children, including forming in them the erroneous impression of social equality of traditional and non-traditional marital relations. Wow. It, you you have it almost memorized. I have it completely memorized. It basically, it, it creates a class of second class. Uh, it, it creates a category of second class citizens. You're actually banned from claiming social equality. Local law enforcement authorities know what the Kremlin's priorities are. They're so-called political extremists. They are people who can be accused of the propaganda of homosexuality, which is also in the minds in that mindset it's it's part of this idea of political extremism uh, and it's also drug enforcement so those three things I mean the vast majority of people who are serving time uh, in Russia who have been through rigged trials and and you know just totally random enforcement are actually serving time for drugs whether or not they ever had anything to do with drugs Right. That's more than half the inmates in, 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 in Russian prisons. And then a few people are also singled out on these uh, political extremism or propaganda of homosexuality charges. And again, some of them had never, uh, never had anything to do with politics. Right. I mean, some cases are manufactured wholesale. There is nothing there. So you can't even say that people did anything to bring it upon themselves. In that way, I mean, it's really sort of terror-like functioning. In Yulia Tsvetkova's case, uh, she she was punished by the work she did uh, for the work she did. Did she think that she was transgressing while she was doing that work? I don't think so, right? And that makes her pretty different from 
the people that we were talking about before, like people who were engaging in self-publishing or you know, um, self-organized exhibits. Like I think your stepfather knew perfectly well. Of course. That he was putting himself at great risk. Yeah, and he was eventually exiled from the country. Right. Um, so I guess to come back to that original problematic construction of a clear line, it seems like that line is not so clear anymore. It seems like you can wander on the wrong side of it without even knowing that you're there. Absolutely. Yeah. And you can also stay on the wrong side of it and be reasonably safe for a protracted period of time. Yeah. So the uncertainty is almost more terrifying than the certainty of being arrested. Well, the uncertainty is the heart of terror, and I think that's what really Putinism inherited from the Soviet Union. Yeah. So when you wrote um, The Future is History, you were writing about this experiment in democracy, this moment that really didn't come to be, that was supplanted by Putinism and supplanted by a much more authoritarian system. And I think at the heart of that answer, perhaps, is the fact that the Putin's government did not come into power on its own steam, by which I mean the government was supported by the, peop the average everyday Russians, who still, the majority of whom still support Putin and still approve of and support the Russian government. Uh, would you agree with that? You know, this, um, this, is the, uh, this is a problem that we're now much more familiar with in this country, which is a problem of using normal political language, sort of everyday political language or, or the language of political science to describe things that really can't be described using it, right? So technically you could say that Putin is supported by a majority of Russians because a majority of Russians, when they go to the polls, if they go to the polls, vote for Putin. They don't have another option. And similarly, if they're asked by a pollster, whether they approve of, of the work that Putin is doing, whether they support him, they will say yes. Again, they don't have another option, right? Um, there's no politics, there's no public sphere, media scorched earth, there's no other political possibility. And I would even say that there isn't, the information that could come doesn't even exist, right? Uh, it's not like there's political life. In the sense that it's not, not being, being reported. Reflected. Right. You know, that we're talking about public opinion in a country that has no public, which has no opinion. Right. right. Um, and that's kind of like uh, that line of, of conversation gets us into that kind of trouble. Right. Uh, I guess the, the other way I wanted to ask it is, you know, in conversations with Russians, you know, even intellectuals, even artists, they hear a real ambivalence about the prospect of Western democracy, a Western-style democracy, about the desirability of Western-style democracy, uh, of people saying, I don't think that could ever work here. And I think a lot of them are shocked because they are speaking to people who've been to the West. They're speaking to people who have certainly know what, peop what people's lives are like outside of Russia and who nonetheless seem not at all eager to criticize the government or speak about the conditions under which artists and writers are working, and who seem to be quite unsure, even in private conversations, that democracy is a very good idea for Russia or something that could ever work there. What do you think that mindset comes from? How do you think about it? So I think about it exactly as you actually just, uh, just summarized. Um, I think of it as the legacy of the longest totalitarian experiment in human history. 
um, I think that the, the Bolsheviks set out to create a new man, and they did. The sociological story is that there's a set of adaptations, there's a set of cultural understandings that were created by state terror and the aftermath of st state terror, so um, the time when you and I grew up, uh, which was no, you could no longer refer to it as state terror, right? But, um, but, it, but it ran on the fumes of, of, of state terror. Um, and, and that those adaptations and those understandings haven't gone anywhere. Um, there's no new story to, to, to replace uh, the, the, the totalitarian story. Another way to think about it is, is psychological, which is intergenerational trauma. And you know, over the last few years, even since I wrote the book, we've learned so much more about that. We, like, uh, we've learned that it's a model that explains a lot of things that have happened in the aftermath of the horrors of the 20th century. Um, we've learned that there are fears and reactions and anxieties that are passed on from generation to generation where people who don't seem to face the same real dangers as their parents or grandparents did still live as though they did. Right, and of course you're referring to the, the new findings in epigenetics, which actually show that we inherit some of these traits. I'm, uh, I mean, that's, again, that's, that's another model in which right. we, can th we can think about it's it. It's just a model, In the right. epigenetic model, we can think of it in the, in the psychological intergenerational trauma model. We can think of it in the sociological, you know, adaptations model. All of those models sure. explain the same thing. Right. I think there's been a lot of writing about how it works on the level of the family. But I think a more interesting question is how it works on the level of society. What happens when an entire society is born with the epigenetic markers of the great terror of collectivization of World War II, you know? And perhaps we're seeing it play out in Russia. I mean, we still don't know very much about the epigenetic model and how it really works, how those markers are transmitted, but it's, it's sure is interesting to think about. So, Masha, I wanted to talk about your new book, uh, Surviving Autocracy. When does it come out? June 2nd. One thing I wanted to ask is, you know, the question that I think is in everybody's mind, which is, what do Are we, we going to survive it? Well, <laughs> that, of course, that is the question that is in everybody's mind. But uh, uh, I guess a smaller question is, what can we learn from looking at Russian artists and writers who've been living under autocracy for quite a long time now in terms of applying it to our experience here in the United States? You know, that's such a great question, and I'm usually resistant to the subtext of that question, which is which kind of tends to reify um, that you know that life of suffering and, and, and sacrifice, which I find no nothing romantic about. Uh, but there's there's something I write about in in, in this new book uh, that I think is instructive, and that is um, what I think happened to language over. Uh, over, over the 20th century in Russia. Uh, and first it was totalitarianism and totalitarian language, which uses words to mean their opposite. You know, it's the war is peace, uh, ignorance is strength model of, of, of language, um, quoting 1984. And, uh, or my favorite example from our Soviet childhoods is, of course, the free expression of citizen will 
which was the phrase used to mean so-called voting, right? And there was nothing free about it. There was, there was no free will involved. There was no citizenship. Yeah, uh, it was and, a completely irrelevant and act. There was no expression. Yeah, it was, I mean, you actually like were required to go to a polling place and put a check mark against the one name that was on the ballot out in the open, right? I mean, free expression of citizen will. Uh, so the aftermath of that, I think, was, and, and I felt it very strongly as a journalist working in Moscow in the early 90s, was that language had been, uh, it had been made suspect, right? So you couldn't use big words. You couldn't use words that, um, that expressed sort of overwhelming emotion, right? Because anything that had to do with, uh, you know, the, 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 the great regard for the party and our glorious future and, um, all those things in which we uh, were supposed to, uh, about which we were supposed to be overwrought, right? Uh, as 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 young pioneers, um, all of that language had to be set aside. But then that wasn't the end of it. Uh, then Putin came in, and Putinism uses language to mean nothing, right? So not the opposite, but just nothing. There's like word salad, and and just this this like endless flow of bureaucratic language and invented phrases that you can't decipher, like the dictatorship of the law or managed democracy. What the fuck is that? Um, and so then um, that makes language even harder to use. And the lesson of that, the, uh, this is a very long lecture, but the, the, the lesson of that for us is, you know, we're actually facing the same problems, uh, both of these problems at the same time. Interesting. Trump uses language to mean nothing, and Trump uses words to mean their opposite. He does both. Can you give us an example? Yeah, absolutely. Um, witch hunt. The most powerful man in the world cannot be the subject of a witch hunt. <laughs> it doesn't work that way. <laughs> right. um, fake news. Right. A phrase that he captured, appropriated, and weaponized. Right. Right. When he refers to actual, real, you know, reported, transparent news articles, he calls them fake, fake news. So that's language used to mean its opposite. Um, and he also uses language to mean nothing, which is most of the time. You know, it's just like a flow of words. Uh, his words are, are over the top. You know, it's like tremendous and, 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 and great and the best, uh, whereas Putin is, is more bureaucratic. But it's, um, it's still, it, it still damages the language. Right. And I think that we have to be really mindful of that uh, as we write now and be incredibly careful with what we allow to get into the language that we actually use and be much more precise um, in using language than we're used to being sort of under normal political circumstances. And especially in, uh, in the parts of the political conversation where he has really successfully managed to, to shift the frame, like on immigration. Mm-hmm. Like not use words like deterrent, uh, which which just is just a hateful concept. You know, not use words like this is now a little bit old, but but it's a great example. The caravan, you know, everybody adopted the caravan. What else could it have been called? It might have been called the Exodus, right? Right. That would have been put a different spin on it. Yeah, or refugees. Or refugees, or you know, yeah. flow of people. I mean, right. 
these are specific terms uh, that are weaponized, but also they're like the, the, they're more general emotional terms like caravan um, that uh, that we have to be really careful about. Masha, thank you. Thank you. This, this has been really such fun. a treat. Yeah, thank you so much for doing this. Thank you for listening to MoMA's Magazine Podcast. A special thanks to our guest, Masha Gessen, to Alex Halberstadt, Prudence Pfeiffer, Leah Dickerman, Natasha Giliberti, and Rafael Tadros. You can find more episodes at moma.org slash magazine.